We do appreciate uh, everyone's presence today. I'll invite you to turn to the Gospel of Matthew today, the book of Matthew, taking our uh, thoughts from a passage found, uh, found in the Sermon on the Mount, in fact. And so uh, turn over to, to that place in the book of Matthew. Just want to say, appreciate everybody being here. I appreciate Brother Holcomb's prayer, especially that portion that was on my behalf. And I uh, want you to continue to do that. It's been a regular part of our prayers together through the years. And so don't want that to stop, want that to continue. And in your private prayers at home as well, continue to remember me and the work here in, in your prayers. Also appreciate him mentioning uh, Brother Dustin, who's going to come and work with us. I think he's already started uh, his, the, the, the process of moving over here. He's excited and their family's excited about coming. And, and we are as well. We anticipate that being a good relationship, uh, beneficial for us, beneficial for him, and working together. There's plenty of work to do in the congregation and outside in the community. Plenty of work for uh, two people to work full-time, uh, give their full-time to the work. And so uh, we're looking forward to that. And I would encourage you in your private prayers to remember Brother Dustin and his work with us as well. And so uh, just appreciate that. Appreciate Alan bringing that to our attention. Well, scriptures teach us that there is a place of reward for the faithful after this life is over, over. We call that place heaven. And there is a place of punishment for the unfaithful. And we call that place hell. The place of reward is described as eternal life in the Bible. If we believe in Jesus as the Son of God, well then there is the promise of everlasting life or eternal life in a passage like John 3 and verse 16. That place is a place of light and life and joy and glory. And so just imagine what heaven will be like for the faithful, how wonderful it will be. On the other hand, the place of punishment is a place of torment and anguish and outer darkness. The one is in the presence of God. Heaven is in the presence of God and in His glory. And I sometimes will describe it as basking in the glory of God. And so we know what it's like to bask in the sunshine on a, uh, maybe the weather's been cold and that, that sunshine is, is warm and we just, we bask in the sunshine. We're basking in the glory of God. And what a wonderful experience that will be. The other, however, is away from the presence of God and how terrible that will be. We never existed in it. We, we never had an existence like that away from the present, totally away from the presence of God. Well, that'll be a terrible existence. Heaven is eternal life, as we said a moment ago. Hell is described in this way. 2 Thessalonians 1 and verse 9, the disobedient will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. And so just as heaven is eternal life, hell is eternal destruction, both of them eternal. Or word destruction carries with it the idea or communicates the idea of ruin, eternal ruin. Not annihilation, not going completely out of existence, but eternal ruin, eternal destruction. Mark describes it as unquenchable fire. Christ and the New Testament writers promise heaven and warn us of hell. We like to talk about the one we don't like to talk about the others so much. We like talking about heaven and going to heaven and basking in the glory of God. We really don't like to talk about or think about enduring the 
torment of hell forever and ever. There are sobering warnings about the reality of hell. Mark chapter 9 is one of those, beginning in verse 43, where he says, if your right eye offends you, pluck it out. Be better to go into heaven or life with no eyes and unable to see than endure the unquenchable fire having two eyes. Romans chapter 2, verses 6 through 9 uh, use words like wrath and anguish and tribulation uh, when they describe hell. We've talked about 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, away from the presence of God, eternal destruction. Another very visit, vivid passage is Hebrews chapter 10, a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversary. And so just think about the horrors, the anguish, the terrible situation that people in hell will experience. The passage we're going to look at falls into that category. It's a, a warning about the, uh, the, the possibility of spending eternity in hell in Matthew chapter 7. So let's look at that passage, Matthew chapter 7. We're going to look at one. There are a series of four passages that serve as warning here at the end of chapter 7. One is, don't go on the broad way, it leads to destruction. Follow the narrow way, it leads to life. Passage of warning. Another passage warns against false teachers who come to you as wolves in sheep's clothing. So be aware of that. Be warned about that. A fourth passage of warning says, Be a wise man who builds his house on the rock. Don't be a foolish man builds his house on the sand, because that, that house will fall. And then the third warning, beginning in verse 21, is the one we will look at. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name do many mighty works or perform many miracles? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. That is a sobering passage, isn't it? <laughs> you think about, think about what's being said there. Every one of us who profess faith in Christ ought to think, whoa, wait a minute. Uh, I need to think about that very carefully. So let's think about this particular passage a little bit. Going to look at the elements in it. Going to look at the mistakes that these people make and what they, what they should have done, what we want to avoid and what we want to do in the time that we have remaining today. Jesus refers to that day. Many will say to me, on that day. Well, what's that day? What is that? Well, of course, that's the day of judgment. The Bible tells us that there's going to be a great day of judgment when everyone will stand before God, stand before Christ, and God will judge through Christ, we'll give an account of ourselves, and we'll either be rewarded or we'll be, we'll be sent away, we'll be punished. Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 24, Jesus refers to that day, the, the day of judgment, uh, and refers to it even in that language. And so he refers to the, the day of judgment. And there are other passages as well that speak of uh, the day of judgment. 
Romans chapter 2 is another passage where uh, Paul describes the day of judgment, beginning in uh, the, specifically in verse 16. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Jesus Christ. On the day when God will judge the secrets of men through Christ. Uh, in uh, chapter 14 of the book of Romans as well, Paul refers to this day of judgment. Look at how he expresses the idea there. He says, uh, we will stand before the judgment seat of God. As it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each one of us will give an account of ourselves to God. And so we will stand before the judgment seat of God and give an account of ourselves. Now, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 has a slight difference in verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he's done, whether good or bad. Each one of us will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And so as Paul says in Romans 2, that God will judge us by the gospel through Christ. Jesus refers to the day of judgment here, that day. Many will say to me on that day. Many will say to me on the day of judgment, when they stand before me and give an account of themselves, I hold them accountable for what they've done, and they're either welcomed into heaven or they're sent away from my presence into hell. Notice in this particular passage, Jesus asserts that he himself will be the judge. That's an audacious statement, really, isn't it? That, that's, that's bold. Many will say to me, what human being would make such a statement as that? Many will say to me in that day, I will say to them, I, I never knew. That's the critical thing in their eternal destiny, whether Christ knows them, whether Jesus knows them. Only God himself, only the Son of God himself can make a statement like that. Well, let's talk about these people a little bit more. Those who do the will of the Father will enter into heaven, is what Jesus says. Who's going to go to heaven? Who's going to enter the kingdom of heaven? Those who do the will of my Father. You see that in the first half of that. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he, he who does the will of my Father will enter. Now, who's not going to enter into the kingdom of heaven? Well, from other passages, we know things like those who reject Christ and the gospel. Those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel, they're going to be sent away. They're not going to inherit eternal life. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 8. The rebellious, the disobedient, the ungodly, the immoral, they're not going to go to heaven. Romans chapter 1, verse 18, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And so the wrath of God is against the immoral, the unrighteous, the ungodly. Specific examples of that are found in a passage like Revelation 21, verse 8. For the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, the immoral persons, the sorcerers, the idolaters, all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. Who's not going to enter the kingdom of heaven? Those who reject the gospel, those who reject Christ, 
those who are immoral, those who are uh, ungodly, those who are rebellious and disobedient. To fill in more specific examples, go back earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, those who are angry. Remember Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, uh, But I say to you, everyone who's angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Whoever's insulting to his brother will be held accountable as well. Those who look upon a woman to lust after her, they will be rejected. The unmerciful, they will be rejected. And so who's not going to enter the kingdom of heaven? The ungodly, the immoral, those who reject the gospel, those who reject Christ, those who don't know God. In this particular passage, however, you know, up to this point, most everybody would agree, yeah, the immoral and ungodly, they're, they're going to go to hell. But in this passage, you got some people that are calling on Jesus as Lord. They, they believe that He's the Lord. They're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. And in this passage, you got some, they're out doing great things. They're out doing mighty works. In the name of the Lord, they're not going to go to heaven. Now, that's why it's sobering, isn't it? <laughs> you see, I'm not, we could say about ourselves, we're, we're not ungodly people, we're not immoral people. We're trying to do what's right. Surely I'm going to go to heaven. This passage says there are some who call upon Him as Lord who won't go. There are some who are out there doing many mighty works who won't go. That's why it's a sobering passage. Because <laughs> we could, if we don't see ourselves in that group, well, you know, we need to reevaluate. So what's the problem here? Well, they, they said, many, not everyone who says to me, Lord will, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's just talk about that idea a little bit, calling on Jesus as Lord. The word Lord indicates someone of superior rank. It's not necessarily even a religious word. A child might call his father Lord. In fact, Matthew 21, verse 30 is an example of that. An employer or a slave owner might be referred to or addressed as Lord. Matthew 13, verse 27, he has a rank superior to that of the slave. And so the slave addresses him as Lord. And then even in Matthew 27, verse 63, the Jews refer to Pilate and address him as, as Lord. Now we, we would maybe use the word sir. And in those kinds of addresses. And so we might say to our father, yes, sir, or no, sir. A slave or a servant might, might address the master as, as sir. Or we might address a government official as, as sir. Uh, but for someone to call Jesus Lord, now that, that's significant. We may not, not see the significance of it because it's so common to us. You see... Jesus was not a father. He was not a slave owner. He was not an estate owner. He wasn't a military officer. He didn't have any servants. He wasn't a government official. Socially, he was a peasant. He, he, was, he was on the low end, the, the, low, the, the bottom end of the social strata. And so he was the son of a carpenter. He's an ordinary person. People dealt with him as if he were an ordinary person. When he went to, uh, to his hometown, to the synagogue there and preached, remember what the reaction of the people was? Where did he get all this wisdom? Isn't it Joseph's son? 
Don't we know his mother, his brothers, his sister? He's one of us. He's one of us. Where did he get all this from? And so he was, he was just, by all appearances, a common, ordinary, peasant human being. But people called him Lord. <laughs> you know, that's, that's significant, isn't it? Especially when they appeal to him for healing. And so in Matthew chapter 8 and verse 2, a leper comes to him and asks him, Lord, will you cleanse me? In chapter 8 and verse 5, a centurion refers to him as Lord, asking the Lord to heal his servant. Matthew chapter 9, two blind men call out to him as Lord. It's always been interesting to me when Peter walks on the water for a little bit, you know, and then he, he begins to sink. He, he doesn't call for, out for the people in the boat to save him. <laughs> Lord, save me. They're addressing Jesus as Lord. He was a peasant, and yet they address him as Lord. They recognize in him someone superior to themselves. Matthew and other New Testament writers refer to God as Lord. Even Jesus himself. In Matthew chapter 11 and in verse 25, Jesus prays to the Father and he says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. And so they recognize God as Lord. Remember, the Jews even developed a tradition in which they would avoid saying the name of God in case they might take it in vain, and they substituted the word Lord. And so they were accustomed to referring to Jehovah, Yahweh, as Lord, and yet they call this man Lord. Even though he was a peasant, the son of a carpenter, a carpenter himself, they call him Lord. They saw evidence that what Jesus said and, and, and did led them to the conclusion that he was superior in rank to themselves. It sounds like the testimony of John the Baptist. John chapter 1, verse 30. Someone is coming after me who is superior in rank to me. And so they saw that. They, saw, they, heard, him, they heard him teach. They saw the miracles that he did. They reached the conclusion that he was the Lord. And rightfully so. In fact, if we want to go to heaven we must recognize Him as the Lord. In Romans chapter 10, you might remember there Paul writes that if we confess with our mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead, you'll be saved. Now, that's not all there is to it, but that's part of, a necessary part of it. We must conclude that Jesus is Lord and be willing to confess that. And so these people in this particular passage rightly call Jesus Lord emphatically. The repetition suggests to us some intensity, some urgency, some emotion. Lord, Lord! <laughs> Didn't we do these things in your name? And yet Jesus says, no, that, that's not enough. Necessary, yes. But that in and of itself, no, not enough. Well, they also go on to say that we did many mighty works in Jesus' name. And to be sure, these things are, are being done. Christ did many mighty works. He healed people. He fed people. He uh, cleansed the lepers. He enabled the blind to see and the lame to walk. and All of those kinds of things. And so these kinds of works were being done. Jesus gave authority to those He sent out in Matthew chapter 10 to do, to do many of the same kind of works. Cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, heal the sick. Throughout the apostolic period, we find people doing miracles. 
uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 8 through 10, enumerates some of the mighty works that were done in that apostolic period. So no question there were people out there doing these things. And these described in this passage before us claim on that day to have done these things. We've done many mighty works in your name, many miracles in your name. We've cast out demons, done lots of things in your name. Not just done them, but done them in your name. And yet, they're going to be rejected. No, doing great works in Jesus' name is not enough, is it? They acknowledge the Lordship of Jesus. They do great works in His name. It may appear to us that they'll be easily accepted into the kingdom of God, but they're not. What, what was the mistake? Well, we'll highlight two. They did not do the will of their Father. See, th those who do the will of the Father, they will be welcomed into the kingdom. Now, Jesus criticized others on occasion that called Him Lord, but did not do what He commanded. Luke chapter 6, for example, in verse 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do the things that I say? And so we know it's possible to recognize Jesus as Lord, and yet not do the Father's will and be disobedient. It's possible for people to do great works, attach the name of Jesus to those great works, and yet actually be motivated by selfish concerns. Now that's possible as well, isn't it? To do great things, to do great works, even to attach the name of Jesus to those great works. And yet, deep down, be motivated by other concerns. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you'll have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. Goes on to talk about prayer and fasting and almsgiving. And so here are good works, perhaps in the name of, in God's name. And yet, deep down, their motive was to be seen of men. People can convince themselves they're doing great things in Jesus' name, when all the while they're doing their own will and not God's. We must do the Father's will. Notice the link in the passage that Jesus makes between entering into the kingdom of heaven and doing the Father's will. In order to enter the kingdom of heaven, there's something for us to do. You know? Sometimes people are told, there's nothing for you to do. No, there is something for us to do. Jesus combines these ideas here. Entering into the kingdom of heaven is linked to, connected to, our doing the Father's will. So entering the kingdom depends not only on what we say, but also what we do. Now, of course, Jesus shows us the way in this, in doing the Father's will. John 6, verse 38, I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And He makes those kinds of statements on, on multiple occasions. I've come here to do His will. Not my will, but His will. So He shows us the way. He shows us the, the example that we are to follow. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and verse 9, there Paul says that we make it our aim, we make it our ambition to be pleasing to Him. And so Paul 
in his life shows us the way as well. Jesus, the prime example, Paul's another example, someone who is intent on doing the Father's will. Look at one other passage along these lines. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, that you shall actually do walk, that you excel still more. Now you've instructed and received instruction for us how to please God, to do His will. And so these people called on Jesus as Lord, but apparently weren't doing His will. They did mighty works in His name, but apparently were not doing His will, the Lord's will. Make some observations about doing the Lord's will. We must do all the Father's will. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word. Every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Can't afford to neglect or overlook any of it. And so, in doing the Father's will, we need to dedicate ourselves to doing all the Father's will in our personal lives and family and community in the church. We must do the Father's will even when it may not be easy for us. Luke 22 and verse 42, Jesus in the garden prayed that this cup might be removed from him not my will, but yours be done. So Jesus was intent on doing the Father's will, even though it wasn't easy for Him. We must do the Father's will because it is the Father's will. <laughs> we must not convince ourselves that we're doing the Father's will when really we're doing our own will, which happens to coincide with the Father's will. God said, don't steal. I'm okay with that. I don't want to steal anyway. Am I doing the Father's will because it's the Father's will? No, not really. I'm doing it. My will happens to coincide and overlap with His will. And so that's where we had to do some soul searching. Am I doing the Father's will because it's the Father's will and not my own? Being selective in doing the Father's will is to fail to do His will at all. And so if I'm selective in doing the Father's will, Father says to do this, 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 and this, and I'll do this and this, but I don't do that and that, and so I'm selecting which of the Father's will I'm going to do. I'm not doing the Father's will at all. I'm doing my own will, which at times happens to coincide with the Father's will. We've got to be careful about it. We've got to see ourselves clearly. We need to pray regularly. Help me to see myself the way you see me <laughs> so I can, I can make improvements where I need to. The will of God, of course, is found in God's Word. We learn the details of His will in the Scriptures. The people in the passage before us, acknowledging Christ as Lord, they were doing great works in His name, but they were not doing the Father's will. They're doing their own will. But it convinced themselves that they were doing the Father's will. That's why it's a sobering passage, isn't it? It's... it's uh, Quite remarkable. Second place where they fell short is here. Then I will declare to you, declare to them, I never knew you. How can that be? <laughs> They're out doing things in Jesus' name. How can he say, I never knew you? It would be safe to say that they never truly knew Christ either. They may know some things about him and his teaching, but that's different from truly knowing him. This speaks to relationship, doesn't it? I did not know you. 
And then, of course, the other side of it, they did not truly know, know Christ either. They might have known some things about Him, but their relationship was deficient. Through research, we may come to know a great deal of a historical figure like maybe Abraham Lincoln. We can read accounts of his life, his letters, his documents, speeches, what his contemporaries said about him. We will never personally know Abraham Lincoln just because we do research and learn things about him. While getting to know a person requires knowing about him, knowing about him is not the same as knowing him. So it is with Christ. To know Him, we must know His identity, He's the Son of God. We must know His teaching, but we must come to know Him as well. That requires listening to, interacting with, understanding His character, understanding His will. Being a disciple of Jesus is not an academic exercise. It's a personal relationship. In Jeremiah chapter 9, Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23, God says, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. I delight in these things. In John chapter 17, as the life of Jesus on earth is coming to a conclusion, He prays to the Father and He says in verse 3, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. There's something wrong with their relationship. Jesus did not know them. He did not approve of them, accept them, and receive them. And they did not truly know Him either. And so their relationship was deficient. There's no substitute for personal discipleship, it's been said. You ever heard a conversation like this? Maybe you have a, a, a relative. You're talking about maybe a, a deceased mother, grandmother, father, grandfather. They've been gone for a while, and, and, and somebody, somebody says, well, I know what daddy would say about this, and then they, he would say this. And you're thinking, he wouldn't say that at all. <laughs> He wouldn't say that at all. So we have to be, we have to be careful about that. I, I know what God would have me to do in this when really what we're trying to, what we end up doing is confirming what we want to do. We get to know God through His Word. We develop our relationship with Him through study and listening and prayer and experience and, and, and meditation and contemplation and time and things like that. And so... We need to make sure that He knows us and we know Him. And so this passage has been described as a profoundly searching and disturbing passage for all professing disciples. And I would say amen to that. Profoundly searching and disturbing passage. The other thing about this passage, we haven't brought out yet, but we'll bring it out here at the end. These these folks seem surprised, don't they? Here they are in the judgment day, and Jesus is sending them away. They seem surprised. What? Me? Lord, Lord, didn't we do these things in your name? And so they had convinced themselves they were right with God when they really were not right with God. And so that serves as a warning to each of us. Let's be sure we're doing the Father's will. How do we know the Father's will? Well, we know it right here. 
Develop your relationship with God through personal devotion. Don't be deceived in thinking we can be saved in any other way. Continually pray to God, help me to see myself as you see me, so that I can become the kind of people, kind of person that you would have me to be. So let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for this opportunity to meet together and to worship you. We pray that the things we've done today have been pleasing to you. Our Father, we are thoughtful about this passage before us today. Help us to consider it seriously. Help us to see the warning that it extends to us. Help us to see ourselves, Father, as you see us, so that we can become what you would have us to be. Help us not to be deceived uh, by any, any factor, maybe our own opinion of ourselves or what others say about ourselves. Help us not to fall into the trap of being selective in our obedience to the Father's will. And help us not to be deceived by thinking the things that we do in Jesus' name by themselves and somehow sufficient to save us. Help us to be devoted to doing the Father's will in every way and for us to develop a relationship with you so that you can say, I, I know him, he's one of mine, because we've come to know you. Father, go with us through the day. Uh, help us in these matters. Help us to grow and develop. Help us to be able to stand on that day in judgment and hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.